0: This is The Cop Shop, the series from Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with NatWest. We're leading the global energy conversation as we dive into the most important climate summit in history and the role of green finance in ensuring the planet can collectively reach its vital emissions reduction targets. On this, the final part of our series, we're delighted to be joined as ever by co-host James Close, Head of Climate Change at NatWest and by Michael Matheson, Cabinet Secretary for Net Zero Energy and Transport at the Scottish Government. And as we speak today, I'm just back from Glasgow for the All Energy Conference at the SEC, and I know that you were there, uh, two cabinet secretaries speaking, and and the SEC obviously just six months ago hosted COP26, and as listeners might expect, a lot was made at All Energy about the the global changes since cop26 with the energy crisis and the the invasion of ukraine exacerbating that situation so cabinet secretary and and james as well i was wondering if firstly we could kind of get both of your reflections on on how things have changed since cop26 and are these these international crises challenging the the outcomes of that cop26 uh, conference uh, cabinet secretary if you could start with yourself please
1: There's no doubt in the course of the last three months alone, the war in Ukraine has had a significant impact on energy markets and also energy security issues. And I think that's probably the main issue that has become an issue of focus since COP26. My view was COP26, the discussions there, everyone recognised that we need to focus on decarbonising our energy systems and whether that be for domestic or uh, non-domestic purposes. Uh, But the issue of energy security, in particular over the course of the last uh, couple of months, has become a much bigger area of focus. And I uh, know from the discussions I've had, so just uh, having returned from uh, the All Energy Conference in Glasgow uh, earlier this week, I was in Rotterdam at the World Hydrogen Summit, um, energy security is now front and centre for many countries in looking at how they will manage their decarbonisation process, but also how they will have security of supply in the future. And I think that's probably the dynamic that has changed the most over the course of the last couple of months. And central to that change in the dynamic has been the way in which countries are now looking at how they can ramp up their decarbonisation quicker in order to reduce their dependency on fossil uh, fuel-based energy, particularly imported fossil fuels, to low carbon and zero carbon technologies. So we're seeing a, what I would say is an exhilaration of the process that we were already engaged in and people are now actually reducing the timeframes that they want to see that decarbonisation process taking place. And, and
0: James, I, I suppose to, to, to put that point to yourself, I mean, if we have this dynamic changing, if we have people trying to get on to alternative uh, well so I guess alternative sources of oil and gas but also you know, low carbon fuels and trying to accelerate that transition. What does that mean for the, the finance that we need to mobilize to make that happen? do we need more of it? do we need to raise it more quickly? Uh, how, how does that
2: play out? I would start off with the customer really. I think the big challenge for our customers is that they've got to cover a lot more cost as a result of the price increases. And I think that's really an opportunity to start thinking about demand side measures and energy efficiency. And I think that's a, a great source of green finance to promote and uh, accelerate energy efficiency. Because the less energy we use, the less we have to decarbonize anyway. So that's the starting point. And I think that uh, as we look at the kind of finance that we can provide, you start to think about how you turn an increasing and volatile operating cost in terms of your energy bills into an upfront capital cost that can be financed still relatively cheaply, even though interest rates are going up, and result in a a much lower operating cost. And I think if we can frame the mobilisation of finance in that way, then I think we can start to make a a big difference immediately in terms of the, uh, the demand side. And then on the supply side, I agree with the the cabinet secretary completely. There's energy security is front and center, and we need to be mobilizing the finance to support building that energy security. We need clear, as ever, policy signals from government that are going to enable us to take an appropriate risk view around the financing. And it's there, it's sitting on people's balance sheets, and we're just looking to put it to work, really. Yeah, Cabinet Secretary, I mean,
0: when we look at the key actions that need to be taken here, and, and, and James has set it, it quite nicely, what, what might be done, would be, you know, in terms of, I guess, the first movers, who should be taking the key actions? Are we, are we looking to government for that? Are we looking at the financiers, the energy companies? Who, who should be getting the ball uh, moving with particularly energy efficiency, I suppose, in terms of the, the rapid change we need in that front?
1: Well, look, as you often say, the cheapest form of energy you can get is energy you don't use. So energy efficiency is a really important part of of helping to support reduction in energy demands. So I think there's a, a combination of things here. So it's a combination of government and the uh, uh, private sector. Government needs to provide the right regulatory framework. It needs to provide the right policy environment. It needs to provide the right type of leadership so that the sector knows what's expected and what we are looking for. And I've got, you know, no doubt from the discussions I've had with a range of different financial organisations is that they're prepared to actually make the finances available if we have the right propositions to put to them on measures such as energy efficiency. So if I take, just say, for example, one one element of what we could do around looking at uh, addressing energy efficiency. So if we were to make much greater use of, let's say, district heating systems, uh, we need to provide a regulatory framework in order to allow organisations and companies who are looking to invest in district hearing systems, the confidence that they need in order to make that investment and uh, the right type of approach that they can take in actually making that investment possible. So I think it's a combination of government and the private sector. And I think one of the challenges we have in Scotland is that some of the companies are looking to make investments in these areas around energy efficiency is scale. Mm. They are looking for a, a scale that it may be that one town or city is not able to deliver itself. So we need to think about how we can create collaborations between different parts of the country. So that might be from Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, working in collaboration looking at developing a programme of, as I say, something like district heating programmes might be one way in which you could actually help to aggregate the potential for investment into these projects so that's that's one thing that we're actively looking at at the present moment the second thing that i think is really important here is that we also need to make sure that in encouraging financiers into this sector is that we're also clear about what the expectations from the financial sector is as well what returns are they looking for uh, from their investment and what implications does that have for end users as a result? So we need to, uh, it's a developing and emerging market here in Scotland and the UK, unlike in Scandinavia, when it comes to things like dishearing systems. But I think there's a real opportunity there for us. And it's an area where I think there is a real potential to get a significant level of private sector investment in alongside public sector investment, which can help to actually address some of the real energy efficiency issues that I think are particularly prominent just now during the the very high price costs that we're all facing at a domestic and and non-domestic level.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's a lot, a lot to cover. So I just want to to rattle through, if we may, um, on on all energy and, and the the cost of living crisis. I mean, Jonathan Brerley, uh, the CEO of Offgem, is speaking, and he said this is well. He cannot find a situation similar to this gas crisis in our post-war energy history. Uh, well, James, I'll maybe go to you for that. Firstly, uh, you know, is, would you say that's a fair assessment of the situation when we look at? The number of people right now who are, who are looking at, you know, having to choose between heating their homes, putting food on the table, it's some really dire straits for many people right now. That mm. we, we are looking to government, we are looking to the financial community as well to, to try help to try address that problem.
2: There's no doubt that it is an enormous shock. I wasn't around in the 1970s, but, so I was only very young, but the three day week was a different type of shock. And of course that was a different way of dealing with the problem. And, you know, I don't know the scale of it, and how to compare it but it is significant and it does require real thoughtful leadership by politicians and also by people like us in in the banking sector as we try and help our customers manage their finances better and we we have a financial health check that's available for every one of our customers where we can walk through all of their expenses and help them figure out uh, which ones of those to prioritize but these are tough choices to make and it's really really difficult And i think we do need to get all hands behind providing the right kind of support and the support that's going to make a difference for as many people as possible and particularly the poorest and the most vulnerable and i suppose one thing
0: that i I might raise is you know the news agenda uh, cabinet secretary rightly has been on the the horrific invasion of ukraine uh, the the gas price crisis but clearly there's well you know you mentioned um our friends in, in Europe and and their plans to try to find alternative fuel supplies. Obviously, right now, there's some very brutal heat waves sweeping across parts of the world. I think mm. I read 50 degrees Celsius in Pakistan yeah. last week. So And now apparently a 50-50% chance of us uh, breaching 1.5 degrees global warming in the next five years, according to the UK Met Office. Um, I suppose just again, going back to these events that have happened since COP26, is there any Feeling, or perhaps a risk, I suppose, of the eye being taken off the ball, if you like, in terms of the the goals of that Glasgow Climate Pact.
1: Well, let, let me deal uh, first of all, though, with the, the issue around the cost living crisis that uh, that households are facing, because a large part of this has been driven because of the the wholesale gas price and the way in which that's spiked over a, an extended period of time. Now, and uh, although there's been some shifting in it in recent days, in recent weeks, um, it still looks as though the price cap is going to have to increase again in uh, in autumn. So let's, th- let's just think about what we need to do here. So we need to think about what we can do in the near term to help households that are in immediate difficulty. And that quite literally is about trying to find ways in which you put money into people's pockets. The second aspect is that in the medium term, what can you do to reduce energy demand? You can do some of that in the short term, but it's probably much more effective over the medium term. So, what can you do to help to reduce energy demand? And then the third thing we need to do in the long term is to make the right choices to insulate ourselves from these types of challenges in the future. Now, a bit like James, I was only a a young kid back in the 70s, but during the energy crisis back in the 70s, there were countries that actually made choices to pivot away from the way in which they traditionally used energy in order to try and reduce the risk of being exposed to it again. Scandinavia is a very good example of that, and one of the ways in which they did that was through the use of district heating programmes in order to help to prevent these types of uh, uh, big price spikes impacting in individual households. So I think we can do, we need to do things in the short, immediate term, medium term, but also some of the things that we need to do in the long term. We need to make the right choices on how people make use of energy, both in terms of demand and also the way in which it's provided. And then that leads me on to the wider issue that you've raised, and that is: is there a risk that we see people pivoting in a different direction that could have a negative impact on our climate change targets for, in Scotland, 2045, for many other countries, 2050? I think at the outset, it would be fair to say I did have some concern around that. I had some concern that people were, they thought that actually the way in which to deal with this is to ramp up hydrocarbon exploitation. And actually, I think the debate has moved away from that. And uh, you know, reflecting on the point that I think John Kerry was making yesterday just in London, when he was saying that actually, the way in which to deal with this is to ramp up renewables so that you reduce your dependency on hydrocarbons and importation of them uh, in future years. So I think we can now see that that's starting to shift. And I know from the engagement I'm having with the sector and with ministers and other parts of of Europe is that the focus now is much more on looking at how we can speed up the rollout of renewables and how we can use the energy that's provided by renewables in a way that helps to deliver energy security, not just at a domestic level, but a wider European level. So if you take something like hydrogen and the potential for both low carbon and renewable hydrogen, countries like Germany have made it very clear their objective now is to decarbonise big parts of their industrial system through moving towards green hydrogen. But what they now need is, they know they have to import some 70% of their hydrogen, but as the biggest economy in Europe, they need a very robust import strategy. That's where countries like Scotland can actually play a big role in helping to support other parts of uh, not just the UK and Europe to decarbonise at a faster rate, And I think what you will see is, you will see, James might know better than I, but my sense is, I can see the commercials starting to drive that. As long as companies know that they've got an off-taker of the product that they're going to produce, the commercials will drive that and the investment will happen. And I'm starting to sense that that's now starting to fall into place. And we will see a much more rapid deployment of renewables and also the low-carbon technologies in areas such as hydrogen in order to speed up that whole process of decarbonisation,
2: yeah, and, and I think it's really interesting to take that view and think about where do we need to get to, to in 2030. What what have we got today, and what can we roll forward that we know? And wind is one of those, but district heating's one that's probably not as well developed, and it's it's not as easily bankable today. But with the right sort of help and support, it will become bankable relatively quickly. Mm. And then we'll start to think about what are the other bits in between that are going to fill in the gaps within the grid. So by 2030, we'll have two terawatts of battery technology from electric vehicles on the grid. And that's a huge opportunity to stabilise the grid and reduce the demand side going in at peak times. But that's going to require some innovation and it's going to require some finance to support that innovation. And I think that's where the cost of capital starts to come down as we know that we've got some twenty thirty targets that we've got to hit when we've got to deploy our capital to enable us to hit those. And of course, those are going to be lower carbon and that is going to be consistent with hitting our carbon targets as well. So I do think there's a positive story around this. I mean, it's easy to get into a council of despair because... There is so much to do and we are living in this unique combination of crises and the horror of Ukraine is really appalling. Hmm. But if we do think forward and we can mark this as a point in time that helps us shift and accelerate to the new technologies, then I think it could be regarded as quite a significant moment and governments, financiers and businesses and consumers need to stand by and prepare for that, I think. And I think, James, on that as well, one of the things that's now emerging, because
1: energy security is is so front and centre is that uh, countries are looking at the supply chain that they may use in the future and are are understandably more cautious about having extended supply lines when it comes to the provision of energy that could be readily interrupted and cause economic damage if it was unduly interrupted, you know, if there was an undue delay in the supply of energy. And that's where I think Scotland has got a really fantastic opportunity here is that with 25, just over 25% of Europe's wind resource and how that could link into the provision of renewable hydrogen. And given it, we're seeing major economies such as Germany staking out very clearly, that's where we are going. You know, I was in discussions when I was in Rotterdam earlier this week, where the Dutch economy is going in that direction as well, Although, but others will follow suit is that they require security of supply from stable, established countries. And one of the real strengths that we have here in Scotland is that uh, some of the countries that are looking to move into this technology and uh, the supply of alternative forms of energy don't have a track record in the energy sector. Scotland has. Aberdeen is the European capital of oil and gas. We have got decades of experience and skill and expertise in this sector. We're talking about pivoting into new forms of energy not starting from scratch. So we have an advantage, not only being just 700 kilometres from the north of Germany, but also we have this very rich established expertise and regulatory function in the energy sector in a way that other countries are now starting to move into this area, don't have and will have to learn how to put in place.
0: Just since you raise oil and gas, what role, continued role do you see oil and gas playing in Scotland's energy mix as we do make
1: this transition, this shift in dynamic, as you described earlier? It's clearly going to continue to play a role, and we'll probably play a role post-2050 as well, and I think the Committee on Climate Change have already acknowledged that, but it'll be a declining role. So we are in a pathway where the the role of hydrocarbons being used in our society has to decline, but there'll be an element of it which will still be required, but it can't be be replaced. And we can see the trajectory that the North Sea is on is a declining trajectory going forward, even with any new fields that are opened up. It's still a declining trajectory, which is why it's important that we are transitioning to the new forms of energy in a a just and fair way so that no individual community is left behind. We don't want to repeat the mistakes that were made when we pivoted out of coal and the damage and the impact that had on communities. So that's why it needs to be a managed, planned transition. But it's important that, as we make that transition from Scotland's perspective, is that we're very much at the forefront of leading in the new technologies that can help to support this decarbonisation, not just here, but in other parts of the world. And that we don't just become simply a production basin for renewable energy. We need to also be in the manufacturing space so that we get the real GVA advantage that comes from manufacturing the products, the technology, the IP, all of that that goes with the the development of these new technologies and these new areas of energy production. And that's where we can make sure that we're at a real advantage and that we are getting the economic benefits of Moving into the renewable sector and clean energy, so it will be part of the mix. It will contain it's a declining. It will be a declining part of it, but as we make that transition, we need to make sure that we are very much in the space of not just becoming that production basin, but we're also very much at the forefront of the developing and manufacturing the technology that the new clean energies will require.
0: Okay, okay. Well, that, I think, is a good spot on which to leave this final episode of The Cop Shop. So thank you to Mr. Matheson and James for joining me. And thank you for the listeners who've been tuning in throughout the series. We hope this has shed some light on how green finance is actually being deployed and the fight against climate change. And don't forget that every week, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. With that, I've been Alistair Thomas. Thank you for listening.
2: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, Leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.